Well, good evening, and many thanks for coming to this lecture. It's, it's a Humanitas lecture, or a Humanitas series of lectures, and I want to say a word about it and about the people who made it possible before I introduce Mark. The Humanitas prof professorships at Oxford and Cambridge are there to enable leading practitioners to address major themes in the arts and social sciences and, and in the humanities. They were created by Lord Weidenfeld, who I was about to say is with us. He's not with us, but he will be with us soon. Uh, and his, uh, his Institute for Strategic Dialogue um, has funded and facilitated these professorships. Tonight's and um, this series has been supported by Freud Communications uh, uh, and the university and, and the college owe Matthew Freud a particular thanks. But they also, as you will have seen from behind me, they have another particular essence, which is that of the late Philip Gould, who died last year at the age of 61. He was, as many of you know, Tony Blair's principal strategist, as well as his pollster. He'd thought a lot about the relationship between the media and policy formation and politics, not merely because he had to produce that for his boss, for tactics and strategy, trying to gain legitimate political advantage, but also because he knew that these relationships are often defining of the nature of democracy itself. Now, to Mark Thompson. He was a humanities student at this university at Burton College, where he read English. He left and joined the BBC, and his career there took him to the top. He had a uh, in a fit of absent-mindedness, he went to Channel 4 for a bit, but came back and became Director General of the BBC in 2004, a post he left only a few months ago. On Monday, on Sunday, he and his family fly to New York. Uh, on Monday, he starts as the Director, as the, not the Director General, the Chief Executive of the New York Times. This lecture tonight is the third in the series. I'm sure many of you have been to the first two, and it's called Not In My Name, and it's about how we talk about war. Indeed, how we talk about our society is the theme running through these lectures. The first was called Is Plato Winning the Argument? And it was answered with a doubtful no, a doubtful no. Plato, as you know, was not a fan of democracy. He preferred that societies be run by aristocracies, rather like BBC Trust. Mark thought that the, the anti-democratic argument had not won, but that if our public language continued to decay, and he gave a lot of evidence to the effect that it was decaying, then, in his words, democracy may falter. Last night, it was called, the lecture was called Consign It to the Flames, which was a quotation from David Hume, who wanted all metaphysics and religious writing burnt, which was one reason why he didn't get the chair of moral philosophy at Edinburgh University. Though I, who read philosophy at a decent university uh, in Edinburgh, read philosophy in the David Hume Tower, which was a kind of late expiation for not giving the greatest philosopher of his day the, uh, the chair. In that lecture, Mark showed uh, that both advocacy and the scientific method, a scientific method which had been accepted as the central method of discovering the truth ever since the Enlightenment by people as diverse as Locke and Voltaire and Hume himself, was sometimes, Mark said, in moral, mortal combat, and sometimes it's the rational method which loses out. But he affirmed that one need not be a Platonist one need not collapse, should not collapse, into a cringe before authority because freedom and openness are what modern democracies are built on and they must continue. President Obama, no doubt following his lead, said something similar in his acceptance speech this morning. Tonight, as I say, it's not in my name, Mark. Thank you, John, uh, and uh, good evening, everyone. You ask, 
What is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against the monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terrors. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Well, I can't do the voice, as you can hear. But that, of course, is Winston Churchill. It's May the 13th, 1940, and he has been Prime Minister for three days. This is his first speech to the House of Commons as Premier. It's also the fourth day of Folgelb, the German invasion of France. As Churchill speaks, the French defence is crumbling at Sedan. Dunkirk is less than a fortnight away. The passage I've just quoted has the structural clarity of a sonnet or a prayer. There are two parts, stanzas I want to call them. The first, asking and answering the question, what is our policy? The second, the question, what is our aim? The first is controlled by the repeated word war, the second by the repeated word victory, though perhaps the single most important word in the entire passage is the very last one, survival. It's rich in rhetorical effect, anachronosis, rhetorical question, alliteration, wage war that God can give us, enumeratio, the listing first of the ways in which the war must be fought, then of the challenges that must be faced before victory can be secured, tricolon crescens, getting more interesting this, those three victory clauses which progressively grow both in length and emphasis, and so on. Yet it never feels studied or contrived, but immediate, unforced, fluid. The repetition, alliteration, and the short, spare clauses driving both the speaker and us as listeners forward. There's one phrase that quotes monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime, which reminds us of the Churchillian oratundity that even contemporaries found old-fashioned, pompous even, though at this moment, it is both comforting and rather magnificent, deftly anchoring what Churchill has to say about the present crisis into a context not just of history, but of a version of that history in which this country has always recognised the chivalrous duty to oppose tyranny and evil. And that's what strikes me most about this passage and about the blood, sweat, toil and tear speech as a whole. This is not a speech about a moral crusade as such. The United Kingdom is at war because it has entered into a defensive pact with other countries and some of its allies have been invaded. Churchill is rallying the commons and the nation for immediate and entirely practical reasons. The enemy is racing across France and the threat of military catastrophe, invasion and national destruction are real and imminent. And yet the moral dimension and the strength that comes from knowing that this is also a righteous fight for civilization against unparalleled evil is completely continuous with the practical. Now, of course, we know much more than Churchill's listeners did about the war that Britain would fight for another five years. We know that while the justification for waging the war, jus ad bellum, would never be seriously questioned, Things will be done by British forces, the bombing of Dresden and other German cities, for instance, which would certainly raise questions of justice in the conduct of that war, jus in bello. In other words, we know that the Second World War fits into an intricate and vexed argument about just and unjust wars that goes back through Aquinas and Augustine to Rome. We also know that the fiction of World War II, the Sword of Honor trilogy, say, or from the other side of the Atlantic, Catch-22, would often express the same themes of absurdity, waste, horror, and despair we associate with the literature of World War I, and that these things would indeed be part of the experience of those who fought in this war. We know if we've read Corelli Barnett's The Audit of War, for instance, that the war effort would sometimes reveal not just British political and industrial incompetence, but disunity and division. 
We know finally that some of Churchill's own newly formed cabinet would soon be making the case for suing for peace with Hitler. But none of this, nor the honorable objections of a minority of conscientious objectors, diminish the sense we have when we listen to Churchill's words of a moment both of supreme emergency, but also of supreme clarity, a moment when leader and people come together and the pragmatic and the moral fuse together and a resolution is made to go on fighting, uncertain of success, but certain at least of the reasons and the moral case for fighting it. What a long shadow that certainty casts. How difficult for any subsequent prime minister to stand at the dispatch box and achieve that level of clarity. So let's listen to one trying. The location is again the House of Commons. The date is now the 18th of March, 2003. And Tony Blair is opening the debate into whether this country should join the United States and other allies in invading Iraq. The speech probably best remembered from this day is the resignation speech made by the late Robin Cook, the author of the Blair government's ethical foreign policy, who had just left the cabinet because of his objections, both practical and moral, to the war. But Tony Blair's speech is itself a striking piece of oratory. This is how it begins. At the outset, I say, it is right that this House debate this issue and pass judgment. That is the democracy that is our right, but that others struggle for in vain. And again, I say, I do not disrespect the views of those in opposition to mine. This is a tough choice, but it is also a stark one to stand British troops down and turn back or to hold to the course we have set. I believe we must hold firm. There is a gracious note to this and indeed to the whole of the speech, an acknowledgement that, as he says a few sentences later, quote, people who agree on everything else disagree on this, whilst, quote, those who never agree on anything find common cause. In these opening words, we hear the first hint of a moral argument, whereas the UK is a country where people have a right to question and debate everything the government proposes, the citizens of Iraq are not so lucky. Next, there is a recognition that this is a tough choice, not in the Churchillian sense of a choice with pain painful consequences, but meaning that the choice itself is difficult to make. But this tough choice is also stark. Perhaps the choice is finely balanced in the listener's mind, but what is involved are alternatives which stand at 180 degrees to each other. There's a little artistry in the way the choice is put. It is either to stand British troops down and turn back or to hold to the course we have set. So who are we? Well, this first we, the, the we that has set the course so far, is clearly Tony Blair himself and his government. But then he goes on to say, I believe we must hold firm. And this second we must include not just his government and his listeners, uh, but not just his government, but his listeners, indeed everyone who will be voting in the Commons, and by extension, the nation. But it's quite easy to miss this distinction and to hear the following meaning. We, everyone, must hold firm to the cause that we, everyone, have already set. Under this meaning, to stand the troops down is to go back on a decision that we had all somehow already made. The simplicity and power of the short sentence, I believe we must hold firm, stands out, though. There's no hint of vaingloriousness about it or aggression. Indeed, the words hold firm smack much more of defence of our own and the world's security than of attack. The I believe is important, too. This is a statement by the leader of a government, but it is also explicitly a personal statement. Knowing how divided the country is and his own party, Tony Blair is laying his own political judgment and reputation on the line. Like Churchill, Blair has practical policies and aims to lay out, but I believe we must hold firm tells us that this is also a question of courage or the lack of it, a question of right and wrong. But the case he then has to set out is far more complex and nuanced than Winston Churchill's. It's a story not of a direct attack on British allies and forces, and who knows, soon the British homeland, but a convoluted tale of UN res resolutions and weapons inspectors and diplomatic manoeuvrings. The questions it seeks to answer are not as simple as what is our policy or what is our aim, but 
Have we exhausted all diplomatic ways of ensuring that Saddam Hussein complied with Resolution 1441? And are the consequences of his non-compliance so serious that they justify the use of force against him? Tony Blair will answer yes to both these questions. Behind these questions and answers is an unspoken but coherent strategic doctrine, the doctrine of liberal interventionism, which the Prime Minister had previously articulated in a speech in Chicago in 1999, and to which not just Kosovo, but the wars in both Afghanistan and Iraq clearly conformed. In many ways, this doctrine would turn out to be what Tony Blair and New Labour meant by an ethical foreign policy, and he would stick to it consistently throughout his premiership. We note, though, how much more sophisticated it is and how much harder to explain than the case for national self-defence in 1940. Nonetheless, in the midst of Tony Blair's painstaking exposition on this day, the ghost of Churchill makes an appearance. Is Saddam Hussein another Adolf Hitler? Are those who opposed the war in 2003 like the appeasers of the 1930s? Tony Blair's answer is a subtle one. He protects himself by dismissing what he calls, quote, glib and foolish comparisons with the 1930s. And explicitly, he says, that no one here is an appeaser. But he then immediately goes on to talk about 1930s appeasement at some length, his argument being that we shouldn't blame these former appeasers because, unlike we who have the benefit of hindsight, they didn't know how dangerous Hitler was. This leads him straight to a discussion of Saddam Hussein and all the evidence that we already have of just how dangerous he is. And elsewhere, he offers this Churchillian insight. The world has to learn all over again the weakness in the face of a th that weakness in the face of a tyrant is the surest way not to peace, but unfortunately to conflict. Eighty years on, hindsight, revisionism, and modern scepticism have done little to blunt or tarnish the impact of Winston Churchill's rhetoric. Just nine years later, it is impossible to read Tony Blair's speech in the way it was intended to be heard at the time. His argument rests centrally, indeed almost exclusively, on Saddam Hussein's weapons of mass destruction and the manifold dangers they pose, direct danger to his neighbours and the region and to us, if the terrorists with whom he colludes get their hands on them, and in, an indirect danger, because if we don't take on Saddam and neutralise his weapons, other bad regimes will keep or acquire ones of their own. The term WMD appears 14 times in the speech, and individual weapons of mass destruction, VX, anthrax, mustard gas, sarin, botulinum toxin, radiological bombs, many more times. None of them were ever found. That is what we know now, and that knowledge eviscerates the speech. To us now, it's a speech without a foundation, a speech almost literally about nothing, which nonetheless led to a war. This is not to reach a verdict about whether or not the speech was delivered in good faith, in other words, whether Tony Blair believed at the time that Saddam had WMD. That's a quite separate issue. It is simply to say that what we might call the objective moral justification set out for going for war has vanished. In his passage about the 1930s, Tony Blair suggested we shouldn't blame the appeasers because it was only later that the scale of the menace of Hitler became clear. But now we have to confront the opposite revelation. In this case, it was only later that it became apparent how much smaller the threat of Saddam was than Tony Blair had originally claimed. Other reasons for toppling Saddam Hussein could and would be adduced. He was a tyrant and a mass murderer. He destabilized the region. A democratic Iraq could be a force for good in the Middle East. But they do not form a significant part of this, the Prime Minister's case for going to war at the point when the decision had to be made. Over the past two days, I've looked at two ways in which I've claimed that our public language has become less effective in helping the public to understand and engage with the big issues of the day. First, because of some developments in the use of language itself, and second, because of the way authority is treated, disputed, and distorted. This evening, I'm going to suggest how we might respond to these developments. But before that, I'm going to touch briefly on what I take to be a third source of potential bewilderment, which is what happens when should enters the sentence. In other words, when politicians and others feel it's necessary or appropriate to add a moral dimension to their arguments 
for a given piece of public policy. Now, of course, there are debates where moral arguments characteristically to the fore. So-called values issues like abortion or the debate about same-sex marriage. Here, the moral case for or against is often spelt out by advocates explicitly, though the debates are often marked by what the philosopher Alastair McIntyre has called conceptual incommensurability, by which he means, I think, that the two sides in the debate proceed from premises and behind them worldviews, which are so radically different that what follows is not a conventional argument at all, but the disconnected interplay of cases, each of which may be consistent in its own terms, but which never touch each other and can therefore never be resolved. The internal logic of a woman's right to choose and the sanctity of human life may be perfect. Bringing these two logics together in the hope of reaching a definitive conclusion is impossible, and thus the argument is, to use McIntyre's word, literally interminable. Interestingly, and this is part of a general difference I noted in my first lecture, this incommensurability and interminability is much more visible and established in American public debate than in this country. In the UK, there's a strong practical or technocratic element to the debate. In this country, for example, when it comes to abortion, often the discourse comes around the precise number of weeks of pregnancy before abortion should be banned. And that pragmatic or technocratic element increases the possibility of compromise and resolution, at least pro tem. Even in the British context, though, I think it's possible to detect signs of a growing absolutism and consequently a growing polarity in the way such issues are discussed. But in much of public policy, the moral sits alongside the practical, alongside political, economic, technical, geostrategic, and potentially many other considerations, and its presence can either be overt or covert and can move from one to the other. If there are differences or divisions on what is right and wrong, then, unlike pure cases like abortion, they can lie dormant until something happens to awaken them. The example I'm going to examine this evening is one where all of these dimensions form part of the debate, though for reasons which I'll come to, the moral dimension seldom disappears entirely from view and often to many members of the public feels like the most important dimension of all. The example is war, the decision to go to war, and, if war comes, the debate about the conduct of that war. What's striking about so much of the modern rhetoric of war in the UK is the extent to which it relies on a set of archetypal paradigms. Churchill, in the 1930s and 40s, is part of a broader paradigm of World War II as the definitive good war. George Bush Sr. was reading Churchill when Saddam invaded Kuwait. It was natural for him to paint Saddam in Hitlerian colours, just as Tony Blair would, at least implicitly, a decade or so later. Anthony Eden would do much the same to Gamal Nasser in the build-up to the Suez Crisis in the 1950s. But the Second World War can be played the other way as well. Perhaps we, or at least those leaders who argue for military intervention, are the bloodthirsty aggressors, war criminals even. If you doubt this, take a look at TonyBlairWarCriminal.com or ArrestBlair.org. Then there are the wars of the imperial era, wars which, at least in this simplified view of history, were just about geographical or economic gain. Perhaps the oil fields of Iraq are the real reason why in 2003 George W. Bush and Tony Blair were determined to press ahead with the invasion. So bloodlust or imperialist greed. But the other major lens through which modern wars are often viewed in this country is a more interesting one. It's the Great War, a war whose popular narrative encompasses heroism, sacrifice, nobility on the battlefield and reckless, incompetent generals and a political class who, for no very good reason, slaughtered a generation. It was famously in Germany that a stab in the back myth took root in the years after the war. But that same sense of betrayal by the elites also characterises the collective memory of the war in Britain too. Arrogance, overconfidence, death through bureaucratic or political miscalculation. These things make the Great War paradigm somehow more modern than the one we associate with World War II. And you bump into it everywhere. In April 2006, Dr John Reid, then Defence Secretary, said a few words at a press conference in Kabul about the British Army's deployment into Helmand province. He was contrasting the aim of this deployment, 
which was intended to focus on reconstruction, security, and the building of strong local institutions, with earlier, more combat-centric or kinetic phases in the Afghan campaign. In that context, he said, quote, we're in the South to help and protect the Afghan people to reconstruct their economy and democracy. We would be perfectly happy to leave in three years' time without firing a shot. But that phrase, without firing one shot, is a resonant and oddly reminiscent one. It has a 1914 home by Christmas quality to it. And although it's not actually an expression of optimism, it's not a prediction, and Dr. Reed cannot have remotely imagined that the deployment would proceed without any military action, it can easily be made to sound like one. Here's Simon Jenkins writing some 18 months later. John Reed, the then Defence Secretary, even talked of completing the Hellman deployment, quote, without a shot being fired. The whole Hellmound expedition has, from the start, been a suicide mission. We might just note that inversion. Now it is without a shot being fired, which, at least to my ear, gives it even more of the sense of an overconfident First World War general or politician. For years now, Dr. Reed has energetically tried to convince the world that, in his own words, quote, I never at any stage expressed the hope, expectation, promise, or pledge that we would leave Afghanistan without firing a shot. He actually once phoned me at home when he heard someone on the BBC suggesting that he had said that, and I acted on his phone call. But once this kind of narrative pull takes hold, it is desperately difficult to defeat or dismiss. On Monday, I talked about compressed phrases, Sarah Palin's death panel, for instance, that can take over a debate. Dr. Reed's problem was rather one of meanings. Instead of his own original meaning, a new meaning had been imposed on his words, a meaning whose connection to national memory was so powerful that it took a life of its own. In March this year, the Lancashire Telegraph reported the death in action in Afghanistan of Sergeant Nigel Coop from the Duke of Lancaster's regiment. Here are some of the comments that were posted on the paper's website under that story. This now brings the total killed to 400. When he was Defence Secretary, John Reid boasted that we would be in and out of Afghanistan without a shot being fired. I wonder how he can sleep at night. The military have done a fantastic job over there at great sacrifice, more than could be said for the politicians. The sad thing is there have never been any casualties amongst the Westminster Regiment. I wear my poppy with pride every year and pray for those that don't come back. RIP, good lads. I, for one, will not forget. We're very close to the First World War here. Dr. Reed's comment has become a boast, and now it's not just about the Helman deployment, but the whole Afghan war. The phrase is now fixed in its inverted form, and there's that jibe which could have come from any de decade over the last hundred years about the Westminster Regiment. I'm not the only one to have become intrigued by the afterlife of John Reed's misquoted quote. This April, Julian Borger wrote a piece again in The Guardian, which pointed up the distortion, but then went on. But the myth does nonetheless encapsulate a deeper truth about the blithe optimism with which the Blair government sent the first deployment of 3,000 soldiers into Helmand in early 2006. That phrase about a myth, which nonetheless encapsulates a deeper truth, is a clear sign, at least to me, that we're heading full steam into what I've called the cloud of unknowing. But the thing that most interests me about this sentence are the two words, blithe optimism. While Borger certainly goes on to catalogue overconfidence amongst the military, the reasons he lists for why the politicians agreed to the deployment do not include optimism. There was, he says, groupthink around the inevitability of the deployment, a sense that Tony Blair might be embarrassed as an international conference if the decision had not been made. Finally, that there was, quote, extremely limited knowledge about conditions on the ground in Helmand. All of these things may be true and may indeed explain a decision which led to an immensely difficult and bloody experience for the thousands of British troops who've ended up serving there. But none of them support the phrase blithe optimism amongst the politicians. And it's difficult to avoid the suspicion that the words are there, and especially that rather Edwardian-sounding adjective blithe, because they firmly bolt the decision and the politicians who made it to the ur-myth of the First World War, lions led by donkeys never such innocence again, or Wilfred Owens Abram, who slew his son and half the seed of Europe one by one. So a sentiment which began as an attempt by a British minister to assure Afghans that his government's intentions in Helmand 
were to do as little fighting and as much reconstructing as possible, ends up morphing into a proof text of ignorance and callousness. And as we've seen already this week, the fact that he didn't actually say it is apparently irrelevant even to those who know he didn't say it. Avarice, recklessness, murderousness, stupidity, a series of historical paradigms that can carry you away like a riptide and an expectation grounded in the Second World War experience that we fight wars in a Manichaean moral universe in which we're either entirely on the side of good or evil. With all these pressures playing on them, no wonder modern politicians often end up in contortions as they try to satisfactorily integrate a moral imperative into fiendishly complicated practical policy considerations. So what are our military objectives in Afghanistan? Given how many politicians I could have quoted from either side of the Atlantic, it seems rather churlish to pick on one. But here is the deputy leader of the Labour Party, Harriet Harman, laying them out in the House of Commons on the 8th of July 2009. Quote, it is important to ensure that in the mountainous regions surrounding Afghanistan and Pakistan, we do not have a crucible for the development of terrorism, which threatens people not only in those countries, but in the wider region and indeed the whole world. This mission is also important for the education of people in Afghanistan. Our troops are paving the way for economic development and a more secure democracy, as well as security in the region and the world. Well, it's a belt and braces list. Despite the topographically puzzling but heroic-sounding reference to the mountainous regions surrounding Afghanistan and Pakistan, we grasp the first war aim at once. It is to interdict the terrorists. Though now, eight years on from 9-11, the mission has broadened and in a way diffused into a global policeman role targeted at those two countries, the region and the whole world. In con contrast to Tony Blair's Iraq speech and indeed Winston Churchill's blood, sweat, toil and tears, national self-defence no longer represents the core of this war aim. But our military objectives, and military objectives were what Mrs Harmon was being asked to explain, also apparently include education, economic development and democracy. Now all of these things no doubt depend on a stable security situation in Afghanistan, one that perhaps could only be achieved by significant numbers of ISAF troops. But it's not just a long list, but one which stretches the use of military force a long way from simple war fighting. As one American commander said to me in Afghanistan, an M16 rifle is not a lot of use when it comes to making the cultural case for women's education. By the 2012 presidential race, American war aims in Afghanistan will come full circle, back to the days following 9-11. As far as both President Obama and candidate Romney were concerned, the US wished Afghanistan well and would continue to support it, no doubt, with aid, training, technology, and diplomacy. But the core war aim, interdiction of terrorists who could attack America and its allies, had been achieved, and because of that, the Western powers could now plan their withdrawal. Everything else, security, education, economic development, democracy, will be left in the hands of the Afghans. So why, just three years earlier, was Harriet Harman and her government's list of military objectives so long? Well, my view is this. Eight years into a war to which both the UK and at least at this moment in 2009, the US, were still fully committed, a kind of moral deficit has opened up in the case. Immediate self-defense was not as compelling as it had been at the start, and other previously ancillary good causes were needed to top up the moral justification for the war. It's easy to dismiss this topping up exercise as cynical. Politicians to carry on with their war, come what may, and prepared to use any excuse to justify it. This is exactly the charge that was made about the Allies in the conduct of their war in Iraq, that when it became clear that WMD, the original casus belli, were unlikely to be found, President Bush and Prime Minister Blair simply switched to other justifications for continuing the war. But the same broadening of war aims has also characterised the Afghan campaign, a campaign whose original justification that Afghanistan had hosted the terrorists who attacked America, has never been undermined. If, in simplistic terms, Iraq was for many a bad war right from the start, Afghanistan certainly began as a good war, or at least a war whose origins in self-defense were so clear-cut and well-evidenced that there was little protest when it began. 
What happened in Afghanistan was not the discovery that the war had been launched on a false prospectus, but something older and more familiar. Domestic fatigue at a war that never seems to end, a sense amongst the political leadership that, that despite the difficulties, there are cogent reasons of state to press on, and the need, therefore, to flesh out new or additional reasons for why it is right, not just practically right, but morally right, to be there. And because some factors, the consideration, for instance, in the case of the UK, of its relationship with the US, are difficult to justify from this moral perspective, it's probably inevitable that humanitarian and developmental goals should be the first to make the cut. So yes, some people will argue this is cynical, but that needn't be the case. A political leader may always have believed that there were multiple justifications and potential benefits for fighting a given war, just as with any other policy choice, even if there was a single overriding one to begin with. And if that's so, it's not obvious that it must be cynical to mention one justification at one point and a second at another. But you can see the problem. Even if always delivered with good faith and the best interests of the country at heart, a list of war aims and justifications which changes and evolves runs the risk of confusing not just the public, but the military leaders who are tasked with actually achieving them. It's not that morally simple wars are impossible to imagine. For many, though of course not everyone, the UK's campaign to reject the Argentinians and recover the Falkland Islands was exactly that. And if this country ever faced the existential threat that confronted it in 1940, we can certainly envisage a rhetoric as direct and compelling as that of Winston Churchill. But of course, these are not typically the kinds of military intervention which Western nations have to contemplate. The ones which they do, Iraq, Afghanistan, Sierra Leone, and the interventions that nearly never were, like Kosovo, or simply never were, like Rwanda, these are as complex as any other piece of modern policy formulation. Explaining the case for and against potentially presents all of the problems I've explored over the past two evenings, but with this additional challenge, that at any time the debate may move abruptly into a pure, purely moral sphere, and your decision to intervene, or as in the case of Rwanda, not to intervene, may be subjected to a moral test. Is it surprising, then, that modern politicians should strive so hard to make sure that at every stage of a given conflict, the aggregate moral justification should be sufficiently high? As a result, though, both the generals in the field and the public at home may struggle to keep up. It's possible that the strategy and tactics required to build a new Afghanistan are identical with those one would employ if the primary aim was solely to interdict international terrorism in that country, but they may not be. And more straightforwardly, a public which is given one list of war aims after another may lose track about why we are there at all. And the controlling narratives which colour so much of public expectations about modern war probably introduce distortions of their own. I suggested that for many in both the US and the UK, Iraq was a bad war in the way that for many, Vietnam and Suez were bad wars, while Afghanistan began as a good or at least a justified war, like the Falklands say, or even the archetypal good war that took place between 1939 and 1945. Given the run of modern history, there's a danger of a particular fallacy or bias, which is that good, good wars end well and bad wars end badly. In reality, domestic support based on a convincing moral case is only one of the factors that determine whether a war achieves its aims or not. The strength of the enemy, the achievability of the war aims, the attitude and the culture of the society in which the conflict takes place, all of these things may influence the outcome. A war can be both justified and yet unwise because of its practical difficulties, while a war can be unjustified or only marginally justified and yet be carried to a militarily successful conclusion. Those who defined Iraq as a bad war and Afghanistan as a good one may yet witness a better outcome in the first than in the second. But the dissonance implied by such a result is very difficult for many people to accept. This is why in the UK, the 2006 deployment of troops into Helman plays such an important part in the framing of the story. Not at the time, but relatively soon afterwards, Helmand came to be seen as a kind of negative turning point, a moment when a good war grounded in self-defence became a bad one grounded in military adventurism, or to put it another way, when a Second World War paradigm gave way to one from the first. And the strange life of Dr. Reed without firing a single shot is part of the rhetorical expression 
of this conceptual turn. To a significant extent, modern popular protest movements against what are taken to be immoral wars, like the Not In Our Name movement, which campaigned against Iraq in some Western countries, work within the framework of this and other controlling paradigms. Theirs is the language of imperialism, lies, and betrayal by elites, and above all, of course, the slaughter of innocents, both on and beyond the battlefield. Of course, there are third-party wars which don't fit neatly into these paradigms and which don't offer characters who can play the familiar roles in the drama. And even if the horrors of these wars, the deaths and maimings of civilians and combatants, rape and murder and war crimes of every kind, are far greater than our own wars, the moral outrage which greets them in the West has a less bitter and vituperative quality. It's a highly disputed topic, but it's, it's clear that some hundreds of thousands of civilians died in the Iraq conflict in the period when Western forces were in the country. It's estimated that the running conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo has claimed between five and a half and six million lives so far, including many millions of children, and that it's involved crimes of murder, rape, torture, and pillage on an unimaginable scale. There are war crimes investigations and suspects, but you'll be hard put to find anything on the internet which mirrors TonyBlairWarCriminal.com. It's too distant and our sense of moral engagement, of moral responsibility, too remote for that kind of animus. Our moral response to war and its human cost is more variegated and more contingent on proximity and relevance than we sometimes acknowledge. Not in my name, then, does not represent a universal abhorrence of any aggressive war or any war crime. Instead, it's focused on something closer to home. After all, you would only use the phrase if you feared that something was being done in your name, or at least that the rest of the world might think it was, unless you vocally refuted it. No, for a citizen in a democracy, not in my name is not just the rejection of a specific democratic decision, but a rejection of that democracy's right to make such a decision on your behalf. It's a moment when moral disgust at what is being proposed overwhelms the sense of the need to obey the conventional rules of the game and, after a period of appropriate debate, accept the verdict of the majority. In that way, it shares some of the certainty and purism of the values debates I discussed earlier, debates in which practical considerations are put in, uh, aside in favour of a very simple, clear and effectively unchangeable position. What follows may well be a powerful individual or collective declaration of morality, but it is a de declaration which is made by people who've already left the debating chamber. It's not for me to say who was right or wrong in the matter of Iraq, but in ways which, like Suez 50 years earlier, still colour British public life nearly a decade on, the decision to go to war in Iraq marks a breakpoint where, for many citizens, an entire diplomatic and technocratic rhetoric collapsed, and the public trust and moral solidarity associated with it was undermined, and so they staged a walkout. Although, of course, that collapse of trust relates closely to the Iraq decision itself, it's hard not to conclude that something broader is at work as well. Just as we did when we looked at the changing texture of public language on Monday and the argument from authority on Tuesday, I think we can see today how difficult it is to construct arguments which do justice to complex, finely balanced policy choices and yet satisfy a public need for utter simplicity and clarity when it comes to morality. That task is made more difficult still when so much of the debate is influenced by prevailing paradigms of limited explanatory power but overwhelming emotional force. Winston Churchill had a harder war to fight but a much easier war to explain in moral as well as practical terms. Over these past three evenings, I've tried to sketch out some of the challenges which I believe confront our public language. So what, if anything, can we do about it? Many of the forces I've talked about, technology, empirical advances in our understanding of language, enlightenment scepticism, especially about authority, the underlying complexity of the issues which public language has to explain and debate, these things are not reversible. There are others whose future path we can't predict. For example, the fragmented and garbled state of many of the West's ideologies since 1989, which has had its own impact on contemporary rhetoric. We can't wish any of this away. 
all the confusion and negativity which follows in its, in its wake and which has been so in evidence, for example, in this year's presidential election. But I don't want to leave you with a prevailing sense of pessimism either about our public language or our political institutions. I do believe that despite the extraordinary openness of modern media, public bewilderment and alienation are real threats. I do believe that the gap between those who formulate and deliver public policy and the public at large is becoming dangerously wide. I suggested on Monday that our public language might be entering a decadent phase, a phase which the ancients believed could precipitate a crisis in political institutions. But it is also possible that what we need is a period of adjustment to our new circumstances, to more complex politics and policy choices, and to an information and media environment which needs new critical tools to understand. After such an adjustment, our public language might regain its explanatory force. So what might that entail? Let's start with the public themselves. What's called for, I believe, is a new and different kind of education in civics. We need not just media literacy, but civic literacy. In our schools, colleges and universities, we need to focus on some of the knowledge and skills about quantity and proportion and probability, which are critical if citizens are to understand public policy choices, but which so many people cannot comprehend. We need to teach citizens how to parse public language in all its many forms, from marketing speak to the loftiest political utterances to the use of video and other media on TV, radio, the web, and social media. Exploring how public language works and developing the critical faculties with which to analyse it is the surest way of understanding it and becoming able to discriminate between valuable information and useful debate and the distortion and exaggeration I've often pointed to in these lectures. In other words, we need our citizens to study rhetoric again. It's a mission which should extend beyond formal education. The BBC and the other broadcasters, our newspapers and the rest of media cultural institutions like the British Library and the BFI all have a part to play. And that brings me to the media and their role. We can't, and I would not want to, reverse the technological advances that have given us ubiquitous, on-all-the-time interactive media. It brings enormous benefits as well as contributing to some of the trends I've been exploring this week. But both public and media professionals need to learn and adapt to the dynamics of this new environment. The concentration and intensification of political rhetoric are driving some public figures beyond any reasonable reading of the facts. And sometimes we in the media lend such distortions a kind of qualified privilege as if they're just one more part of the political process and should really only be challenged by other politicians. But for me, lies are lies and should always be exposed at once. Fact-checking should be a bigger and more prominent feature in the way all responsible media reports public affairs. I don't subscribe to the view that the media as a whole are too hard or hostile in our handling of politicians. On the contrary, in our failure often to interrogate claims, to deconstruct statistics, to submit opposition spokespeople and others to the rigours we regularly apply to those in government, I believe that we sometimes err on the side of softness. My friend, the former Panorama reporter, John Ware, once proposed to me a new current affairs programme with the title Lie of the Week. It wouldn't be short of material. <laughs> Next, we should get the facts right ourselves. It's not just lazy, but wrong, for instance, to misquote people so that it can be fitted more easily into a pre-cooked narrative of your own choosing. Great journalism questions pat narratives and thinks twice before declaring a turning point or a defining moment. It knows that reality and history don't generally conform to simple geometric shapes. It needs thinking time and the space to reduce its evidence and develop its case. That is why the preservation of long-form journalism for investigations, policy analysis, debate, and for classic reportage is so critical. By this, I don't mean long-form instead of short-form, but long-form alongside short-form. Long-form which someone who has read and heard the short form and who wants to know and understand more can move on to. And I believe there's evidence at the BBC and indeed the New York Times and other broadcasters, newspapers and websites that there is still a significant appetite for journalism of this kind. So finally, let me turn to politicians and other public figures. In many ways, they have the hardest job, the complexity of communication overlaid on top of the complexity of the underlying issues. 
forced by the exigencies of political campaigning to make extravagant promises before they enter office, they're then confronted with reality with all its constraints, and yet still have to strive to satisfy the public expectations they have raised. Because our public language seldom does justice to the landscape of trade-offs in which they're making actual policy decisions, they have to communicate in a way which somehow bridges the gap between that technocratic domain and the much less nuanced and more partisan arena in which political debate takes place. I haven't got much to offer other than the belief that in the end, clarity, consistency and reasonableness increase public trust while showboating, artful phrase-making and tactical manoeuvring do not, even if they appear to offer immediate political advantage. Simplicity is a wonderful thing, but many public policy areas are necessarily complicated and bogus simplicity or simplesse reduces the chances of true public understanding. If experts want to be treated as experts, it's better if they don't stray too far from their area of expertise. If politicians want public support for something as momentous as a decision to go to war, it would be better if they explain clearly why, including all of the considerations, not just the more obviously appealing ones, and then stuck to those war aims through thick and thin. But the demonization of politicians by other politicians and by the media is itself part of the problem, and not least because it can be so readily presented as an easy but false explanation of the problem. Democracy depends significantly on the ability of political leaders of different views to collaborate as well as to compete with each other. Serious public policy initiatives, for example, reforming a healthcare system, depend on strategies which will inevitably take longer than any presidential term or stint in government. Strategic consistency of policy depends on a language which can support compromise and concession and the possibility of good faith on the part of those who disagree with you. In the US more than in the UK, but in the UK as well, this is exactly what we are in danger of losing. The only chance of recovering it, naive though it may sound, is the return of a generosity of spirit and the emergence of political leaders and commentators with the courage to put the case for it into words. Difficult, almost impossible, that may be. Perhaps it's that, though, which offers us our very best chance of escaping the cloud of unknowing. Thank you very much.